0: This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. A contractor
1: ever tell you the price of something and it sounds so high you think, "Eh, maybe I'll try it myself. Some jobs just aren't that difficult and yes, you can do it. If you want to find out how to do those things, listen to Fix It 101, podcast everywhere. From MPB Think Radio, you're listening to Creature Comforts. It's the show all about your animals and the animals around you. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson, and Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. The term urban wildlife may conjure up thoughts of squirrels and birds in one's backyard, but it also encompasses creatures like raccoons and possums that tend to emerge mainly during the night. Even the sight of a deer near your residence or workplace could be common urban wildlife. Joining us today, our guest for the hour, Dr. Adam Ronke from the Central Mississippi Research and Extension Center at Mississippi State University. We're going to delve into the topic of urban wildlife and how to safely observe the natural world. Also, Dr. Major, as usual, is on hand to answer your pet questions. Libby still joins us remotely. She's eager to hear your recent encounters with nature. Email animals at mpbonline.org. And if you miss Creature Comforts on Thursday, we always like to remind you that it repeats every Saturday morning at 6. So good morning. Uh, Libby, why don't we start out with you? What are you seeing uh, outside your window here these last few days?
2: Right now I've got Anna's hummingbird outside the window and California scrub jays, American crow I've heard this morning, red-breasted nuthatch, lesser goldfinch, some spotted towhee, black-capped chickadees, cedar waxwings, dark-eyed junco, and a morning dove. That was my my morning, but uh, several of these birds I would have heard probably if I was in Mississippi, so it's, again, um, an interesting morning. We spent uh, a good bit of time outside this past week, but it's been hot here. Uh, the heat wave did catch up with us. <laughs> so we, We've had excess you know, in excess of 100 degrees for the last three or four days, yeah, which is more unusual here. And so many people don't have air conditioning here that um, what we do is look for the coolest place we can go outside. And for us, that was heading to the coast and the coastal range of mountains. So we went to Mary's Peak we had good friends visiting, and of course, we had told them about the cool weather out here, of course, and uh, they weren't able to escape the heat from, in, from Mississippi, very much heading west, but uh, they at least got some cool mornings and evenings and got to see a lot of new scenery, so we took them to Mary's Peak, which is um, it's just a 4,000-foot peak, but that makes a big difference when you're talking about... a. 105-degree day, and we got up there, and it was um, maybe 80, you know, 75 to 80. So that was a fun time, and we took great long walks and saw a lot of things. Uh, walked in some beautiful old-growth forest made up of organ oaks, and uh, there was a lot of blue, blue spruce and Douglas fir and um, beautiful place, of course, and lots of rock which was fun. And we went to um, Aussie Falls, which is, um, the Aussie River is a, a major river close to us, and we boat on the river. When we um, One of the days we went to the coast, we took the boat and went crabbing on the, the mouth of the Aussie River just as it pours into the um, bay there and then further into the Pacific Ocean. So uh, we saw a lot of harbor seals and pigeon guillemots and western gulls so um different habitat and then one day we spent on the beaches with the um grandsons with the the two-year-old and the seven-year-old so we walked on the beaches and um, played in the sand there in Newport and it was also cool so we've had a big time in spite of the heat
1: well that's good it's always good to be able to try to keep busy and keep having adventures uh, despite the heat and it's I'm unfortunate that it did catch up with you uh we it's funny to me because uh, when the temperature is like 110 degrees or whatever it is 105 when it gets down even to say 80 degrees we're all convinced ourselves oh hey this is very pleasant you know so it's funny uh i went out on my walk the other day and it was 80 and i thought hey this isn't really too bad so it's interesting how easily humans can adapt sometimes to uh, different uh, temperature fluctuations this is Creature yes. Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Got a couple early callers on the line, so why don't we go to the phone, starting in Natchez. Francis has called in today. Good morning. You're on the air with us, so go ahead.
0: Yes, sir. Uh, thanks for having me on. My question is, I killed two of the biggest snakes I've ever seen, uh, you know, in my life. And, you know, they were in the position of the mating position. You know, when I saw them, they were curled up in the air. And, my, uh, and a friend of mine told me, It might have been two uh, males fighting over a female, is that possible? And if so, how does the males make, you know, how do they fight over females?
3: Um,
1: Adam, any thoughts on that?
3: Well, I was hoping we were going to start off with a bird question because that's my (laughs) repertoire. But uh, uh, it could have been a a number of things. I will admit uh, snakes are not to my strong point, but I have a couple of colleagues that uh, are probably answering it as they listen to this. Um, It it could have been a number of things, but I I will will say – you know, we're a big proponent of uh, trying not to, to kill snakes if you don't if you don't have to. Obviously, if it's an immediate threat to family or friends uh, or even pets, um, it's understandable at that point. But uh, more people end up usually getting bit uh, uh, in the process of, of trying to do that. But I do understand the general fear of, of snakes, um, but uh, I can't directly answer that. Just, uh, I don't have enough experience, but maybe Libby can address it. Any thoughts, Libby?
2: Well, I can say that it um, may have been more likely this time of year to be mating snakes. If you watch them a little while, yeah, and that's that's what I kind of would suggest to Francis. When when uh, snakes are in, engaged with one another, they're no harm to you. So it, it's a good time to kind of watch at that point and see what's going on, and then we'd know more about. About what was happening that day, but there was a good chance that it was two mating snakes if they were entwined, uh, particularly if they were in the branches and they they um, wrap their bodies around each other, and um, it generally goes on for a while, and uh, <laughs> you you get a so you get a good chance to ID the snakes when you find them in that condition. I know that occasionally. Two large male snakes will fight, but um, if you watch for very long at all, it kind of becomes evident that this is aggressive because there is striking, and even if they are not actually biting each other, there's there's sort of a, the mock fight that that looks pretty violent.
1: Yeah, I don't know if you guys remember. Um, I appreciate you bringing this up, Francis, because in uh, two two 2020, there was a like a rare sighting of these timber rattlesnakes fighting, and a guy caught it on cell phone camera. Um, do you guys, do you remember that? It was like September of 2020, and Hi. we even had Terry Van DeVenter. He came mm-hmm. on and talked about how it was really, really rare to catch that. Happening because you know Terry has been dealing with snakes uh, for a mighty long time, and he said he had he had not even seen where these two timber rattlesnakes were fighting over you know territory and the right to mate. So you may have seen you may have seen something, Francis. I don't know.
2: <laughs> yeah, that's what I would say. Next time, um, don't be quite so quick to take those snakes out, and you might um, you might develop a an interest in them.
1: All right, Francis, we appreciate your phone call. Let's get one more call in before the first break. We go to Loosedale next. Jeffrey has called in today. Good morning. You're on the air with us. Go ahead. Hi. Hey, what do you have for us today?
0: You talk talk about strange animals coming around your place because of this drought we're having. I believe I had a bear visit last night.
4: Mm -hmm. The way
0: I live, there's a swamp out back with a creek going to it. And I know it's pretty much dried up now. But uh, a couple times before they've been through, and this is the time of year they come through, they head north to the Desoto National Forest. But uh, I didn't get to see it. I've talked to the game warden about it. He said, don't bother them, just let them alone. But I sure smelled it, and I've smelled a lot of things around here, and I've <laughs> smelled nothing like that before. <laughs>
3: Yeah, they, they can put off uh, uh, quite the odor. Uh, a lot of mammals, one uh, that's how they identify e- each other. But uh, most most mammals do have uh, a pretty pretty high scent load uh, with that. So,
1: Adam, would extreme weather like we've been having increase the chances of uh, creature? person interactions
3: Uh, it could particularly uh, where irrigation is involved Um, so I'm sure our golf courses uh, which we actually doing some research on golf courses here in in the Jackson area um, I'm sure we will see an uptick of animal activity um, because they are highly irrigated uh, locations Uh, we have a lot of folks that I'm sure I'll start getting calls in here pretty quickly if we don't get some rain um, about uh, Uh, mole and vole damage and it's usually um, in the neighborhoods or subdivisions uh, with irrigation systems. Um, They're going to go where the the dirt's softer and and easier to to move through than the hard compacted areas. So uh, I had one of those calls years ago um, where they had a lot of construction going on around them and they had just laid new sod and new topsoil before that and I've never seen that amount of (laughs) uh, damage from moles and voles but it was it was the the only buffet in town if you want to say uh, with it so um so yes uh, stressful periods even in a normal august september time frame in in mississippi is a high stress period for for a lot of critters and uh, even my colleagues in the white tailed deer world this is uh, a very stressful period of time because there's not a lot of Uh, uh, new green vegetation that's uh, highly sought after and and digestible. So it it can get pretty stressful until uh, the the mass crops start falling.
1: So before we delve into
3: things with uh, Adam,
1: we are talking about uh, urban wildlife. And Dr. Major, maybe a couple of instances where our pets encounter urban wildlife. Maybe one of the more common ones would be uh, snakes and a curious dog, perhaps?
0: Absolutely. Uh, We've seen several snake bites within the last two weeks and uh, usually it is because of curiosity uh, and most of these uh, encounters have occurred in the morning when it's relatively cool. Of course, you know, in the past we've had what, mornings that were in that mid-80s or more but uh, the dog goes out and goes to the bathroom and there's a snake out there so he l- l- checks it out and he gets bitten on the foot or on the, on the nose so yes, we've seen an increase in that. One interesting thing that uh, I observed or read is that a lot of the copperheads, they love the cicadas, Hmm. and they will literally climb a tree to get to a cicada, and they will feast on those. I know y'all have all heard a bunch of cicadas lately. Mm -hmm. Uh, Also, uh, deer, uh, I've seen several uh, pairs of uh, fawns, still have their spots. And we have what I call yard deer at our place and uh, pulled in the other night, and there were two right there, I mean, within five feet of the steps. Hmm. Front steps, they were bedded down, and they kind of leisurely got up. They didn't run away. They probably came back as soon as we got in the house. But anyway, it's just one of those things that uh, the dry weather. Oh, incidentally, I know people may not appreciate this or not, but I, we do have a sprinkler system, I try not to run it too often, but there um, <laughs> was a squirrel laid out flat in the driveway, enjoying the sprinkler going over him. and you could tell he was kind of rolling around and probably drinking as well as it came by, but it was really amusing watching a big squirrel, and he was just laying out under the sprinkler.
1: So one of the other ones that cat owners might be familiar with is when the cat brings them home a present in the form of a mouse or a bird that they might have caught in the backyard. Um, And obviously, this is something the cat is doing as like an offering, I guess it is. Are pet owners, should we be worried about disease or how would you handle that if if your cat brought you something like that?
0: Well, cats, cats can bring up a small snake as well. Uh so they there are all kinds of things. I, I have I wonder exactly what's going on. It seems like almost that they are presenting it or an offering, uh <laughs> to their pet owner and sometimes they wind up with it inside the house especially if there's a uh pet door. In general I'd say that you're not uh exposing yourself to too much disease. The birds should not have anything I would think, uh now that the bird flu has gone. Dissipated, and there's all kinds of things that could happen. And uh, I would just say, safely dispose of whatever the cat brings into you. Uh, put on some gloves. Most everybody has gloves in the house now, and uh, just uh, humanely dispose of it.
1: This is I, is,
0: is it an offering. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Or maybe just say, hey, look at me. I'm the best hunter in the town. Yeah,
1: I think it might be showing off. That, that to me, sounds, fits in with cats' uh, personalities, <laughs> I think. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. We're going to be visiting this hour with our guest from the MSU Urban Wildlife Program, Adam Ronke. And, Adam, before we dive into things, I think you had mentioned before we came on the air that you had a couple events that you wanted to talk about.
3: Yeah, a couple uh, colleagues of mine, uh, we always try to help each other out and uh, spread the word about their events. Uh, real quickly, uh, it's a monthly event, but uh, for the folks down on the coast and the, the lower six counties, we'll say uh, there's the Mississippi Coastal Cleanup Program. Uh, you can just Google that and go to their website. There's monthly cleanups available uh, in those counties, and you can uh, sign up and register for that. The next one is coming up this Saturday, August 19th. At the Washington Street Pier and Boat Launch in Bay St. Louis. Again, go to coastalcleanup.extension.msstateoneword.edu or you can simply Google Mississippi Coastal Cleanup and it will pop up. The next one, which I'm sure we'll be plugging multiple times, is the Pearl River Suite with Abby Brahman's Broman, group, uh, the Pearl River Keeper. Uh, go to pearl dot com and start signing up for those uh multiple sites uh across twenty two states and uh twenty twenty or sorry fifteen counties and two parishes in Mississippi and Louisiana. Um, it's open for all ages and groups, but you need to register, uh, and get set up at different sites. It's a great way. They've, they've removed, uh, over 150,000 pounds of trash from the Pearl River basin, which is pretty, pretty remarkable in six years. And you can, you can see the difference here in Jackson and you can see the difference if you're out on the river and the tributaries. Um, it's definitely less trash load, uh, in, in those tributaries. And lastly, um, there's a lot of hunter ed classes going on across the state, but one in particular a colleague of mine is running um, is at Camp McCain this weekend, 8, uh, 8.19. It runs from 8 a.m. to 6 p.m. There is no cost. Um, there are eight seats left in the class. Minimum age is 10 years old with a guardian. So go to Mississippi Department of Wildlife, Fisheries, and Parks website, so mdwfp.com. Click on the Ed and Outreach tab. And he followed the information there to register for that course. It's time that time of year. So we've
1: uh, thrown the word uh, the term around a little bit here this morning. So let's start with the basics. How do you define urban wildlife? What are we talking about?
3: Oh man, we could have a whole whole class just on that. (laughs) How people define urban wildlife. It's really going to depend on who you're talking to. We were just talking about outdoor cats uh even outdoor dogs, um and, and some other critters and some people would actually uh put that into uh, uh their wildlife category. So it really does come down to an ind- individual's uh value set and how they define that. But technically speaking in the in the professional biologist world it's typically the non domesticated uh animals that we are we are talking about. Um so many of which you've mentioned uh Gray squirrels are doing excellent in Jackson, Mississippi, um, eastern gray squirrels particularly. Um, we have fox squirrels, raccoons, uh, opossums, white-tailed deer. Um, but we have some of the other ones that people don't necessarily associate with, with uh, urban wildlife. But we have coyotes in the Jackson Metro. We have bobcats in the Jackson Metro. We have alligators all through downtown Jackson and Jackson Metro with the Pearl River um, so, we have a lot of unique wildlife uh, here in in our largest metropolitan area of the state
1: and I think it was a several maybe a couple of months ago that there was an alligator. I think it uh, I want to say in Flowood somewhere that it had blocked off traffic and everything and yeah. kind of yes. him out of the way there yep. so yep. Uh, unusual at first, but maybe not so unusual when you mm-hmm. when you stop and start to think about it. So, um, what what sort of information can we glean from studying the populations of these urban uh, of urban wildlife?
3: Yeah, I kind of simply stated as the good, bad, and ugly of 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 wildlife. Um, We're actually conducting some listening sessions right now across the Jackson Metro with municipalities and and homeowner and neighborhood associations. Um, And often the conversation will start with what we would call conflict situations. you know uh, uh canada geese uh defecating out golf courses or people's front lawns or being aggressive in that way squirrels chewing and in, getting into the attic um actually meant, somebody mentioned bats getting into the parking garage here at uh, mpb studios uh things like that so it tends to gravitate that way but a lot of the conversation will then turn into the positive of urban wildlife and people wanting to plant pollinator gardens um encouraging wildlife to, to come to their backyard and and to uh, Dr. Major's point, point. Um, and thanks again, Dr. Major, for the appointment last week with my dog. Everything's do- doing well. It was good to see you. But um, uh, his point about the sprinklers coming on, the gray squirrel laying underneath it, especially during this time of year, if you, you are watering, which I wouldn't re- recommend not doing too much of, immediately any water feature, especially this time of year, Birds, everything will concentrate. to the, It's like they can smell it in the air, um, <laughs> and they will be going through the sprinkler with it. So um, it really can cover the, the, the gamut of, of what we're talking about, but we're, it's both sides of it. So it's often the conflict and then also the positive sides. And sometimes you can have that right in the same street and next door to each other and, and neighbors having uh, different values and, and how that works.
1: So uh, MSU is a member of the Urban Wildlife Information Network. If you would, uh, tell us what that's all about.
3: Yes. So this is a uh, collaboration of now 52 cities uh, across North America. Um, It is also a couple cities in the European continent, a couple setting up in Africa, and also um, on the Asian uh, continent. Last time I was here, I believe it was 25 cities, which – you guys inform me it's been two years since I've been here, which I'm kind of embarrassed it's been that long. Um, but uh, so this is a collaboration of hundreds of of uh, biologists, educators, uh, and all different types of natural resource professionals, urban planners working together on a unified research plan um, to do a monitoring program using wildlife cameras. People call them deer trail cameras uh, typically. Um on a a uniform approach uh, across our cities and a standard time of year, multiple times a year, and then putting all that information together to where we can start running analysis uh, on that information to understand certain species behavior or their occupancy rate in different types of uh, habitats like golf courses, uh, parks, schoolyards, other green spaces like nature centers or right-of-ways, undeveloped land. And how does that fluctuate across the different cities, for bigger cities to smaller cities, or even just the rural urban gradient within a city? how does What does the uh, urban wildlife population look like down at Smith Park in downtown Jackson, our most urban area, out to, say, Canton uh, or Gluckstat, where it's being developed, and how does that change? So some of those simple questions, but also plugging that information into looking forward. We're talking about the good, bad, and ugly of wildlife. We're, we're hoping to go over the next several years using that information and also um, social information to start building out predictive maps to where we can actually help decision-makers maybe do some pre- a preventative instead of reactive Uh, uh, I want to say maintenance, but management uh, to try and reduce some of those conflict issues.
1: This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson. And Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. Our guest for the hour from the Mississippi State Urban Wildlife Program is Adam Ronke. If you miss any of today's show, you can subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. Or better still, download the MPB Public Media app for your smartphone. That way you get to listen to all the local MPB Think Radio programs on your schedule. You can always send an email to animals.com at mpbonline.org. Back to the phone lines we go. Elizabeth has called in from Jackson. Good morning, Elizabeth. You're on the air. Go ahead
4: my call. We have an outdoor cat. He's a rescue cat that has refused to live happily as um, an indoor cat, and so we have accommodated, and he he does the fine space kind of right in our front yard and on our front porch, but that means that we're feeding him on the front porch, and it appears that we're feeding half of our neighborhood's raccoons possums as well along with him, which we actually have fun you know, watching on our on our security camera, we watch the party of raccoons that comes throughout the night, but they sure do make a mess. And my question is, um, are we doing a disservice to the raccoons and possums by letting them um, eat their weight in cat food? And is there any danger for our cat in um a food and water bowl with these um, raccoons and possums that come throughout the night?
3: Uh, From the wildlife side, I will give the simple answer yes, and I'm going to kick it to Dr. Major to talk about uh, first the interaction between those critters, and then I'll come back in.
1: Yeah, so Dr. Major, is it a worry when our pets are sharing uh, food bowls with wildlife?
0: You know, it's a common practice in parts of Jackson, I know, uh, but it's not a good thing. Uh, Raccoons are coming to a food source. They're cute. They're amazing. I saw a litter of, I think, five run right across the road just yesterday afternoon. They were pretty good sized little raccoons, but they were all together like a pack. Uh, the problem is this uh, raccoons can spread disease, and uh, specifically, one of the diseases that's most commonly spread is leptospirosis, which can be spread to humans as well. Uh, She mentioned making a mess. They tend to urinate, defecate in that area as well where they're eating, and it can be a possible potential problem. Uh, The problem is you're putting out food, and they're enjoying it. And uh, I'd have to uh, defer to Adam from that standpoint. It's really not advisable to put out food, whether it's a deer or other animal, uh, just to see it eaten for your pleasure.
3: Yeah. So to uh, the continue off of that, uh, you know, sometimes we biles uh, us. We talk out of both sides of our mouth. We talk about bird feeders and how to design, and how is that different than some something eating out of cat feed? And the, the honest answer, there there really isn't. But there's there's smarter ways of. Working with bird feeders to try and reduce uh, 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 issues like disease issues with that, but particularly with that intermixing with your cat. One, there's a threat to your cat not only with the disease, but uh, raccoons may look fun, but uh, they can handle their own, and they, they can they can tear up a, a large dog and no problem, uh, regardless if they're disease loaded or not. If if it gets into a confrontation, especially if there's multiples, uh, but anytime you have a food source that concentrates a group of animals, whether it's a single species or multiple species, you increase the chance of uh, disease transmission. Um, so again, that, that comes back full circle to what Dr. Major said. Um, and also you're habituating the animals and the young of this year and potentially the younger than the next year, uh, they get used to that food source. And if you happen to be out filling that bowl or out on, on the deck doing that and they, uh, Associate you with the food, they may become potentially quasi aggressive, maybe not in a quote unquote mean way. I'm kind of anthropomized. Anthrop- I can't say that word all of a sudden. <laughs> Anyways, you know the word I'm saying. Um, um, but it, it just really sets up a situation where it could become a danger to yourself. And bottom line is. Uh, you know, going back to the bear world, uh, a fed bear is a dead bear because um, usually the uh, professionals will have to come in at some point to remove those, those animals because it can become a danger to the public. So my recommendation would be to try to train the cat. I uh, would love to get them inside, but I won't get in my soapbox with that. I understand once they're out, it's pretty hard. But if you could feed them, feed the cat at certain times of the day or inside the garage, let them eat, and then pull that food up and routinely clean that area, um, I think uh, you will lose the enjoyment of your raccoon watching. Um, but uh, it's probably best for all uh, to approach it that way.
0: Adam? Yes? Uh, one of the things we've seen and heard of, I haven't experienced it myself, but remember if you have a pet door, a raccoon can come home in the house and they can do a tremendous amount of damage searching for food, just uh, wrecking the house. So, Very good point. You'd yeah. you rather not be feeding and encouraging uh, the raccoons. And my suggestion, and you might not agree, but I'd say that if you feed the cat during daylight hours, uh, uh, noon, early, or early in the morning, uh, I think, and take the food up, you'll, you'll reduce the risk of the raccoons
3: uh eating at that place. Yeah, d- uh, definitely. I I think that would help. Uh, the, anything is better than leaving it out there all the time.
1: So, uh Adam, do our stray dogs and feral cats uh got got counted for when it when it comes to uh, urban wildlife study?
3: Yes, we don't necessarily count them as wildlife, but they have a lot of impact on urban wildlife behavior, uh, often um, avoidance um, uh, for a lot of our critters. So we do count them uh, when we are going through our, our camera trap, what we call camera traps uh, our trail camera data. Um, our volunteers that are uh, coming through those and identifying uh, the critters in there, we do identify uh, uh, domestic animal presence and activity in the area because that can influence whether white-tailed deer is in front of that camera or not for a period of time after that. And there's been studies on that and also other human activity in in parks if, uh, or off of trails. Uh, there's been studies on uh, the effects and how far out from that trail um, uh human presence can have on, on uh, not only just general wildlife behavior but specific species and how they respond to that and that's also why some areas restrict having uh, dogs on trails because they've even found that they can even have a more of a confounding effect uh, on that especially if they're off leash uh, so uh, some of those uh, rules in and in, uh, public areas are set up based on uh, research data that are showing that. And they're trying, they have an overall mission to protect the resource, which includes wildlife. So I know it can be annoying uh, sometimes not to be able to take your dog on those, those trails, but there's often a reason uh, for it.
1: So COVID-19, with a couple of, uh, of uh, years in the in the rearview mirror, at least when we kind of had to shut things down, mm-hmm. did you see more wildlife in urban areas during that time when people
3: were kind of shuttered in their houses? So that's the, that's the million-dollar question. There has been some studies and a lot of an, an anecdotal uh, uh, notes that there was some increase in some cities, and in fact, we... Uh, scrambled before everything got shut down, me personally, and put out our 42 cameras as fast as we could before everything got locked down, along with um, the majority of our partners in the UN group. And uh, we left those cameras out for the full six months until things started to uh, relax a little bit. Um so where I'm getting at is we have a lot of data that we're coming through and my colleagues at uh, uh in California are leading that paper and we hope to have it out soon to actually see if there was a documented uptick we'll say in urban uh, wildlife and specific species activity. I would go on a hunch that I think some of our cities particularly the larger ones that have very res- uh strong restrictions um I wouldn't be surprised if we saw an uptick to what magnitude I don't know. Um we'll have to let the data tell us that. Here in Jackson I'm going to go out on a limb and say we may see a little difference, but maybe not much. In fact, it could go the other way because people were using a lot of green spaces at that time because it was safer to be outside and spread apart, so it could actually had a negative effect. In fact, I remember putting out uh, one of our cameras at one of our local uh, uh, Jackson parks, and I had never seen so many people in the (laughs) park before, and I've lived here for 19 years, and I went – well, this could be interesting. Um, so we're, we're still working on that. That's the only problem with camera data. It takes a lot of work to process it. Um, you're talking hundreds and hundreds of thousands of photos that two people have to look at and then be validated. And then you've got to run the analysis on all that. So it, that is forthcoming. But I look forward to coming back on and talking about that when it's released.
1: We've got a caller on the line. So let's go back to the phone lines and say good morning to Katie calling in from Raleigh. Good morning. You're on the air with us.
4: Uh, Good morning. Uh, I have two questions. And the first one is, um, we normally um, collect our uh, condensate from our central AC and water plants with it. Uh, But I was wondering, I know birds like dripping and we, we water, we provide water for the birds separately. But I was wondering if it would if that kind, con- if that condensate would be harmful for the birds, if we like put a shallow dish down to catch the drips.
3: I want to say one that's awesome that you're doing that. That's a great idea, and I've got a weekend project now. Uh, <laughs> um, that's the only part of my St. Augustine that's still green at this point. Um, <laughs> I want to say it should be fine, but I want to talk to um a person that I know that's in that in that uh, field um, that will let me know if there's any other byproduct in that water that I'm not aware of. I'm sure it right. probably is, but if you would um, just reach out to uh, send me an email at adam a d a m dot Ronke, that's r o h N K E at M S State, that's one word, M S S S T A T E dot E D U, and I will get that answer for you as soon as I get back to the office.
4: Okay. <clears throat> and uh I had one more question and about um regarding sprinklers. Mm-hmm. Uh do you would you consider that it would be worthwhile to have a sprinkler just turn on periodically during times like these for the birds
3: Um, (laughs) it's sort of wasteful but mm -hmm. uh, well let me give an example in my backyard I will turn it on to keep my salvia going for the hummingbirds and the other birds happen to enjoy Uh it so if you're using it to uh, uh, supplement other things and just turning it on for them to enjoy it I'm also turning it on for my big big dumb chocolate lab that Dr. Major takes care of, uh, and my my seven, or sorry, eight-year-old, gosh, he'll yell at me if I call him seven again, eight-year-old and three-year-old to to play in uh, for a short period of time. But if you do it for something like that, that's what I would recommend. Otherwise, I would use one of the drip uh, uh, irrigations that you have for a a bird water bass would be more efficient.
4: Okay. All right. Well, thank you so much.
3: Thank you. I look forward to getting that answer for you today. All right. Thanks, Katie. All
4: right. Thank you. Good to hear from
1: you this morning. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio, visiting today with our guest, Adam Ronke, talking about his work with urban wildlife. Um, One thing that you mentioned when you visited us in 2021 was the Jackson Wildlife Story Map. Is that project ongoing? And if you could remind us what that's all about.
3: Yes. So we've been talking about uh, camera traps and being part of the UN group that's based out of Chicago. So we are now entering our fifth year, which I'm proud to say has been fully supported by our Master Naturalist Program, which I've come on to talk about before. It's an adult volunteer program that receives training uh, through our annual classes, both here in Jackson and one starting on the coast here in a couple weeks Uh, Sorry, folks, it's already full, but you can get on the waiting list for their class next year and also our class uh, next year going to our... uh mississippi master naturalist website but yes we have a story map built now which is essentially a website but it's an interactive website to where you can actually look at our sites uh, where we are located in jackson as far as where our, our cameras are they're not exact locations we're not that silly uh, to, to do that but they're the parks that we're in um, and we have information on the critters that we're seeing there uh, that we update in a timely fashion and we're also building a cultural side of that we're working with the city of Jackson and the historical files and we have history uh, students and several of our interns have worked on that over the summer to add stories about our city parks and other parks and other sites so you can learn about the history of the park but also the critters there and eventually we'll have Additional uh, uh, information on the critters there, with uh, hopefully a live upfeed as we continue to develop that story map. So it's a, it's a really fun site. It's pretty straightforward and simple right now, um, but we just uh, got a person started actually yesterday uh, that will be be with me for the next several years, uh, working on developing that out into a much broader platform that will be ver- very interactive for the public and
1: And this one served as a model for other cities to emulate
3: yeah, so what we're hoping to do um part of the collaboration with UN is giving back to the group and I'm one of few of the extension folks in the in the group, and we are actually working on that as we speak uh, to put that into a training module to where we can then give it to the other cities and what I'm hoping is the other cities will fully adopt it and then we can have like a mothership story map with a point on the map. You can click that city, and and then you can see their whole story uh, about their project there. So that's something that's in the works.
1: And I love the way the the cultural history is tied into where that's that's a very cool idea. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Let's get one final call. We'll go to Memphis, and Carrie has called in today. Good morning. You're on the air, so go ahead.
4: Oh, good morning. I was wondering, is there any uh, business or uh, county programs that might be interested in collecting uh, live poisonous snakes uh, that occasionally come up in my yard. I was uh, thinking venom, pur- venom purposes.
3: Uh, that I am, I am not aware of. Uh, I had a similar question a couple of weeks ago, and I was not aware. Uh, I talked to a colleague that is very in that much in that field. And he was not aware of a, of a training of someone that was interested in that. Uh, I can't speak for the Memphis area. You you would probably have to reach out to your local county extension office, which you have a great county extension office in Shelby County, and see if they have contacts for local uh, wildlife control officers. Would be my recommendation.
4: Now, I'll I'll do that. Thank you so much mm-hmm. for pointing me in the
1: right. All right, Carrie, Thanks for your call. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. So, uh, Adam, we got about two and a half minutes left, and we talked about uh, the Urban Wildlife Network. You mentioned that a couple times. If you would, maybe wrap things up by giving us kind of the overview of of what's going on.
3: Yeah. So we're part of that network. uh, But here in in (coughs) Jackson, we kind of have four main things that we're focused on with this Jackson Metro project, and we hope to expand it to other parts of the state as we move forward. Uh, It's got four main pillars, a research pillar, a community engagement pillar, technical guidance pillar and also one that we're working on and I'm I'm really excited about a workforce development pillar. And very briefly, the research pillar is self-explanatory, obviously with the camera project, but also looking at the socioeconomic aspects and how that influences habitat on the ground for urban critters. We had a great project uh, this uh, summer working on noise pollution and also other uh, particulates in the air by one of my uh, uh, interns this summer that I want to give a shout out to Rosie. She's having uh, some, some recent health issues and I know she's listening. She loves this show and, uh, we're hoping the best for her and her recovery. Um, but, but we partnered with uh, Brown University uh, on that project and looked to carry that forward. Community engagement, the story map, is uh, something we're working on. Our master naturalists, none of this would happen without them. And the needs assessments that I talked about before, we are conducting those across the Jackson Metro to get a better idea of what people – Think of wildlife in their neighborhoods and what are their needs related to it, good, bad, and ugly. And that would obviously blend right into the technical guidance uh, part of our program. And lastly, the workforce development part, Uh, Working with our partners like Jackson City, City of Jackson Parks and our other uh, sister communities around us and providing professional training for their staff. Um, Working with other professionals that have better experience than we do and getting all this information in one spot to make it easier to uh, coexist with wildlife in the Jackson metro area. And then long term, we're hoping that we can develop uh, internships and maybe short term employment uh, for our communities here in Jackson to where we can introduce young folks to this field that they can hopefully be employed in their own communities helping with the good bad and ugly of urban wildlife and that's a long-term goal that we have but I'm very much looking forward to getting to that.
1: And also, say, maybe to wrap up, to say, if you encounter urban wildlife uh, in your area, your yards, that
3: sort of thing, observe at a distance. And observe at a difference, yep. And check out our story map. Just Google Jackson urban wildlife story map, and it'll be the first thing that pops up. All right. That's going to wrap us up for
1: today. Creature Comforts is a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting Think Radio, funding provided in part by generous contributions from listeners. To hear today's show or a previous show, you can visit mpbonline.org slash radio. Our show is produced by Java Chapman, and our call screener today was uh, Abram Nanny. So for Dr. Troy Major, Libby Hartfield, and our guest Adam Ronke, I'm Kevin Farrell. Inviting you to stay tuned, because up next, it's AutoCorrect. We'll be back next Thursday at 9 for another Creature Comforts. It's heard only on MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast.
0: To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand.